Welcome to Maker Skills, exploring your internal toolkit with PJ, Tanda, and Tom. Welcome back, everyone, to episode 51. We have a special guest with us tonight. Tony Rouleau is filling in for Tom, who basically just didn't want to be on the podcast with Tony for some reason. He gave us some kind of ridiculous excuse about sick kids, but I don't buy that for a second. I've seen his kids. Tony, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I had a special thing set up. Now I can't find it. Oh, here we go. So normally Tom just makes a bunch of noise, but I got a bell for you. So welcome, Tony. You're the first person to get a bell. I'm honored. Uh, (laughs) So, Tony, what is your dominant skill set? Machining. And... If you had to give us a number, what skill class is machining? Uh, I'd say 9.875. Tanda, does that check out? That, that seems reasonable, unless you want to go down to the tenths. I mean, wh- whatever sounds good to you. I, I really don't know. But, uh, but yeah, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. It's time for history and fun facts. Tony, did you do any research on machining? I did. I did. There's a, a lot of machining history is, is boring. Fun fact is, is do you know how to make uh, three? How to how to make a perfectly flat plate without any special equipment? Yeah, I bring it to you. <laughs> well, no, that's, uh, there's a and, and 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 Tony rubs them together magically. Yeah, yeah. Basically, yeah. that's what you do. You need three plates, and the thought process is is if you rub, if you keep switching between the three plates. They will eliminate the high spots and you will generate a perfect plane. Because if you only have two plates, they will eventually, you know, they, the, it's the trying to think of the theory behind it. But the three different plates will eliminate each error. Where, like I said, if you have two, they will tend to, to marry together. And you, if you have highs and lows, they will match. But with the three plate system, and that's how... Right. So the only geometry common to all three objects is a, is a plane. So if you keep switching between the three repeatedly, yeah, then you'll eventually end up with a flat plane because it's the only thing that could could be common among the three. Yes. Yeah. I, I found that really fascinating because it's like, where did, you know, where, you know, where, what was the first thing <laughs> that was flat that you used as a reference? Or did you just say, oh, this is reasonably flat. And so that's really fascinating that you you can create your own surface plate yeah i have the answer for that because as soon as tony started describing it it immediately brought to me i i I saw this program where they were talking about i don't think it was the pyramids i think it was something else where they're making large like uh megalithic stones and they're making bricks like big large bricks they hypothesized that the way to do that is to put one stone on the ground and then suspend the other one put like lubricate it with water and then you lower one stone on top of the other and then you're spinning it and then it's basically grinding one stone against the other and then you keep lowering it and then what happens is it makes a flat surface on both the stones and then you just keep doing that until they're both like one side is completely flat on both of them and then you just rotate the stone 
and then I guess you, you'd rotate the one on the floor too. But that's exactly what I thought of when you said that. But they're only using uh, two. They weren't using three. But you could end up with a dome and a cup if you're just using two. Yeah, that's because that's worth a third kind of. Yeah. Uh, hey, this is what the TV said. There was people in the mountains. <laughs> if you're marrying those blocks together, then yes, they'll they'll be perfectly flat to each other, and that might mm-hmm. just be what is you know required. There's a there's a really good book. It's called The Perfectionist. And uh, uh, Simon Winchester is the guy's name. And he goes through the history of precision. In the very beginning, he starts out, it was the late 1700s. He shows how they, when they built steam engines, they would just basically bend iron plates around in a circle and that would make the piston. And this guy figured out, he basically made a crude boring bar and figured out a way to, to bore the cylinder and the piston turn the piston and he could get a precision fit which was like it was groundbreaking at the time and from there once they proved that theory out it just precision took off you know it was easier Hmm. and easier to make that's interesting like he made one of the first like line boring tools or something along those lines have been around forever but this was you know a precision fit for mm-hmm. and it was quite a it was quite a large diameter for what it was but it's these big steam engines that powered and then it goes on to they talk about textile mills and they talk about do you guys know what luddites are the term oh, it's yeah, kind of yeah. a Those, slang they're like yeah. amish people yeah right? yeah well no that that's been a no, they were named after i mean they started destroying the looms after the uh the, the, the you know, punch is, cards is, were introduced yeah luddite luddites are people that rail against technology it's kind of like this day and age it's like a a slang and it's just weird to hear that in 1811 people were rebelling because it was textiles like tanda said it was the looms Mm -hmm. the looms became automated and it's just funny to hear in 18 i think 1811 is when it started it lasted a couple years where they they would go in and sabotage textile mills but you hear stories of people railed against table saws that's not real mm. woodworking and it's just funny you see now cncs that's not real making or machining or whatever woodworking whatever you want to mm. call it it's just interesting right. to see that how it just repeats with each introduction so it's just kind of like calls out people's uh, aversion to change or some people's aversion to change is yeah, yeah. and he rolls into rolls into he rolls into rolls royce and then it gets into like the towards the end of the book is where they do like the the mirror the mirrored telescopes where they're like the glass mirrored lens mm-hmm. that are like 30 feet in diameter and like a speck wow. of dust ruins it you know they get into that flatness and stuff that's required it, it, it's it's to me it was very interesting it, it sounds like it would be boring but the the pace of it's pretty good it was it was a short book so it was but there was some really neat stuff in it. That's good. I'll have to check that out. And it's called The Perfectionists? Yeah, The Perfectionists. Yeah, Simon Winchester. Yeah. I'll have to I'll have to look into that. The movie was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> really enjoyed it. So, uh, Tanda, did you do any research? I think the thing that I found interesting that I've researched, and um, I won't go into it in detail, but one of the things that was interesting was I've been fascinated by CNC machining or numerical control machining and kind of the history of that, which is not terribly old, really. I mean, it was post-World War II before we really had NC machining. One of the fun facts that comes out of that is uh, the expression doing it by the numbers. 
And that came out of the early days of NC machining when they were making, um, I believe it was helicopter rotor blades for Sikorsky. And they, back then they made, I mean, now they're probably a carbon fiber layup, but back then they actually had ribs, they had a spar and ribs, and they had to cut this kind of 3D taper along the blade. And they were just doing it with a very small number of points and French curves and kind of just a traditional approach. But it was kind of the early days of computers. And so someone was like, well, could you just give us like hundreds of points along that curve? And then someone would sit there with this chart of numbers calling out the coordinates. And then the two people moving the X and Y hand wheels would move it to those numbers. And then they would call out the next set of numbers and the people moving the hand wheels would move it to those numbers and so on. So it was kind of like, you know, a numerically controlled machine, but it was someone just calling out the numbers of the next coordinate and people moving it to those. And that was called by the numbers or doing it by the numbers. And we still use that expression today of, you know, we're going to do it by the numbers. And so that was my little little fun fact from NC machining days. And then it wasn't long before someone was like, wait a minute, we've kind of got this concept of a servo motor where we can connect one motor to drive another motor and we could just have the computer, instead of producing the list of numbers, we could have it move the motors itself. And so NC machining was was born. But really, you know, hasn't been that long ago. I mean, easily within our, you know, our parents' lifetime and, you know, our, our lifetimes, um, within our generation, NC machining has gone from non-existent to amazing five-axis or multi-axis machines doing, you know, so much in, you know, 60, 70 years time. So that's that's what I find fascinating. That is... Not as fascinating as the movie on Tony's book. I gotta say, Tony's book was better. So, but uh, but yeah, that's okay. That's uh, it's it's still good. We we don't do anything by the numbers here. This is this is we barely do it by letters. So it's you know it's it's good enough. But as for me, uh, I looked up fun facts on milling machines because you know there's lots of those. I found five, but I'm only gonna read a couple because some of them are. One of them's on CNC milling machines, and Tana just talked about that. So they were invented in the 1700s. The first one was invented by a Frenchman named Jacques de Vacusson, and he applied for a patent for a rotary file that mimicked the operation of modern-day milling machines. And then people went from there, and more milling machines were iterated. Uh, I did not know this. Uh, so a milling machine can be horizontal or vertical. I think we're pretty much all used to seeing the verticals, but uh, they can go either way. They're switch hitters. Mm-hmm. Probably my favorite fun fact here is that milling machines produce swarf. If you don't know, uh, swarf is basically the material that's been removed from workpieces. It's either called swarf or chips, and uh, most companies will recycle or reuse the swarf. At first I read it, I thought that that was the thing that Tony Stark wanted to get after the Avengers saved New York, but then I realized that was shawarma, not schwarf. So it's it's easy to mistake the two. And uh, the other fun fact is that the uh, cutting speeds for milling machines are measured in revolutions. So there's that. So all you people that have been using miles per hour, you're, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> 
You've just entered the dealer's corner where bargains are currency. Prepare yourself. All right. So there were many deals this week. I don't know exactly what happened, but the, the, the floodgates opened up for me. So the first one is called the Foggy Philippines deal. There was this guy named Mark uh, who was a heart attack survivor and a Jehovah's Witness who was moving to the Philippines to marry a woman of the same faith and had never been there before, by the way. I, I said, has he been there? Nope. <laughs> he's been talking to this lady for two years online, and he's like, that's it, I'm done. I'm going. So he was selling his Delta Floor Model uh, DP220 drill press for 50 bucks, and this was 30 minutes away from me. And it was missing the um, pulley cover bell housing, um, the lock washers for the depth stop, and the chuck key. But, you know, uh, the motor was a GE. It was not a, an original motor. But, you know, it ran really nice. And on top of that, he was throwing out, like, a bunch of stuff because he was moving. So I rummaged around through there. I got 42 6x6 square ceramic tiles, uh, a couple of power supplies, an electronic <laughs> Black & Decker rodent and insect audio repellent. Man, that is a tongue twister. Uh, and then probably the best out of everything was I got three pieces of eighth-inch acrylic sheets that were, one was still in the plastic, so it was new. Uh, so anyway, that was pretty good for 50 bucks. Got, got some extras. Then we've got the cross-country deal. Uh, Maker Camp was this weekend, and I got a visit from Ben Makes KC and Tool Scrounge. Uh, they, they, Jason flew in and uh, him and Ben decided to go cross country in Ben's SUV to get to Maker Camp. Ben had collected a few things for me because he knew that he was going to be driving out this way. And the two of them stopped at, in the Junkosphere and, and dropped him off. I got a 1951 Rockwell Delta 6-inch by 48-inch belt sander uh, with the original switch and stand but the motor had been swapped out with a one-horsepower Baldor motor. And Ben said that when he went to pick it up, the guy was like, I hope it's okay. It doesn't have the original. It's got a Baldor. <laughs> like, yeah, that's worth as much as the sander, dude. <laughs> so the guy wanted 210 And I told Ben, I said, offer him 200 even. And he, he took it. He snapped it right up. So 200 bucks, that's that's a steal. And I've been trying to get one of those sanders for over three years now. So that was, I was super happy. Then there was a benchtop Walker Turner drill press with golf ball knobs for the depth, the the arms. It's got like the four, the four, I don't even know what to call that. It's the handle with the four arms on it for plunging the, the drill head. I should know the name for that. But anyway, all the knobs were gone. And then we were replaced with white golf balls. So I don't know. There was some kind of catastrophic knob failure. That was 75. I asked, I said, off from 60. And the guy's like, nope, it's 75. <laughs> so, but nothing was missing. And it had the original motor and the table. For some reason, tables go missing all the time. Basically, it had everything except the knobs. So 75 bucks was a good deal. And then Ben was nice enough to bring me a Rockwell uh, electric, a vintage Rockwell electric hand drill, which is added to the collection, uh, a broken auto scroller for parts, 
and a nearly mint Union cash box because he knows that I collect uh, Union toolboxes and this thing was pristine. My last deal uh, wasn't even my deal. Uh, old timey tools shot me a message and he's like, hey, I can't get this. You need to jump on it. It's a guy in New Jersey. He's got a Delta drill press. And that was it. I didn't know anything else. And he's like, it's a hundred bucks. I texted the guy. We went back and forth and I was getting this kind of weird vibe from him. Like I didn't, something was not quite right. He, the way he was answering me was off. But anyway, we made an arrangement and I kept in constant contact with him. And then this was Thursday. So I arranged to come Saturday and pick the stuff up. And then I text him, I'm leaving. And he goes, somebody else offered to buy it. If it said it's worth more money, it's 150 now. And I'm like, I'm, I'm literally backing out the driveway. You're going to raise the price on me now? He goes, well, do you want it or not? And I'm like, all right, man, fine. Yeah, I'll take it for 150 And the only reason I agreed to that was because it had a foot pedal for depressing the drill press head, which is rare. Foot pedals are not common. So anyway, the guy's name is John. He's 78. And he's moving out to Idaho to be with his family. And he was selling off his dad's tools. So if he's 78, you imagine how old his dad was when he actually bought this stuff. Now, I could tell from the one picture he sent me that it was a Delta drill press. But when I got there, I was in for a little bit of a surprise. Uh, it happened to be made by Delta for the Procunior Safety Chuck Company. And this was a Procunior Universal Tapping Machine. So Procunior made tapping heads and they needed a system for their tapping heads. So Delta provided them to the company. And based on my research, it seems to me that this was made somewhere between 1930 and 1945 because there's no Rockwell badging on it, which leads me to believe that this is prior to Rockwell buying Delta. And... Procunior as a company started in 1928. So those two things kind of ballpark the age of this thing. And it's got, uh, in addition to the, the foot pedal, which is has a double armature instead of a single, which is on normal deltas, have a single armature going from the foot pedal up to, uh, to pull down everything. Uh, it also has a counterweight going down the column, which... Uh, my buddy Kyle thinks that that was for the tapping system because it needed some kind of a positive return uh, for it to reverse out as it's tapping, I guess. But I don't know that. That's hearsay. That's hearsay. Anyway, it was in good condition. The only thing, it didn't have the original motor. It had a Dayton motor, which was a little, little discouraging. And it was missing the pointer that you know points at the column to let you know exactly how far you're you're going down. And no chuck key. Oh, and the elevator drive track was also missing. It had an industrial table on it that had a built-in handle. So, so there was a couple things missing, but still a pretty good deal. And he happened to have a Delta scroll saw stand there. He was asking 40 bucks. I told him, I said, I didn't need it. But if he was selling it for like 20 bucks, I'd take it with me. And he's like, take it. So I got a scroll saw stand for 20 bucks. And that was it. That was that's That's the report for this week. Not a bunch of stuff, but all good deals. Good deal on good deals. Were those deals hot enough for you? You got a sizzling deal that's burning a hole in your pocket? Send it in. Maybe we'll read it on air. 
All right, it's time for personal history. Tony, what is your personal history with machining? How did you become the master machinist that you are today? Uh, I went to college for three hours. That sounds about right, yeah. I, gra I graduated high school, and I was force-fed that you have to go to college. So I was going to go to college to become a mechanical engineer. Uh, I went for literally three hours and realized that it was just there's not, not absolutely nothing wrong with mechanical engineering. It's just, it just was it just wasn't for me. I wanted to work with my hands. College just seemed like more of high school. Like I I understand why various college programs exist, but to me, I wanted to be thrown headlong into what I wanted to do. I didn't want to do all these ancillary courses. Mm -hmm. So it was in the same city that my father work or currently works so i went to his office was just practically in tears because you know they had they were helping me pay for it and everything and i was like i don't you know i made this awful mistake and he's like well let's you know let's see what you know what we can do and they ended up getting like 95 percent of their money back it wasn't a big deal i started looking around and, and back in high school i saw that there's a, a trade school called BOCES and in New York and BOCES is kind of frowned upon because the it was a trade school so the slow kids went and it was just total BS and I wanted to go in high school and they said no 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 you need to get this type of high school diploma well come to find out the school gets a kickback if enough kids you know qualify for this and mm -hmm. So I just went the college route, but speaking to my dad, he's like, well, you know, let's see if we can get you into BOCES as an adult because there is, there was continuing education and the adults take, can take it alongside of the high school students. So that's what I did is in, in that following January, I signed up and I went, started going, taking uh, classes at, through the BOCES, through machining and it was a it was actually a college level course you 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 accrued college credits by just taking it so it, it kind of dispelled the whole myth that you know if you went there but i know jimmy has talked about it on other podcasts about you know it, it it's just looked down upon because you know it, it at the time and it, it's it's the stigma starting to go away but you know, I graduated in 95. It was, you go to college, you don't become a tradesperson. They're, they're, mm -hmm. you know, they're nothing. So, well, I decided to sign up to be a machinist and then come to find out, I knew my, I had a bunch of uncles on my father's side. I knew they did industrial type stuff, but I had like six uncles that were machinists. And it was just interesting that I kind of gravitated towards that. And I ended up getting a lot of you know, hand me down tools. And that's, that's a big thing when you're starting out in machining is it's very tool heavy with measuring tools, you know, obviously milling machines and stuff are all supplied at machine shops, but measuring tools are not cheap, especially good ones. So that helped me start from there. I went to, I went to BOCES in the morning for two years. In the afternoons, I repaired tools at my, my father works for an independent hardware store. And I repaired Milwaukee and Bosch, a uh, couple other brands. 
And that was, I feel, was kind of a, that was an education in itself, too, because that showed me, you know, how to troubleshoot bearings, what happens to gears when they go bad. And that all helped, I think, mm. mold my career. So mm -hmm. there was a, there was like an honor society type thing for BOCES, and I was the, the only machinist picked for it. And the speaker there was a local machine shop owner. My teacher introduced me to him, and that's what got me into the working force. And then at 25 years later, I'm still doing it. <laughs> so what what in there, what pulled you towards machining? Like at, out of the, the school had other things. What was the thing that pulled you to that? I like the thought of the precision. You know, I, I liked the, the, you know, cutting metal and theory is, is, is not, you know, to, to, to a normal maker, you know, some people, people are intimidated to drill a hole in steel, you know what I mean? And it was, it was that, it was that challenge. And like I said, the precision of it, I don't, and it's kind of, I liked the, you were producing something tangible. And to me, that was really, you know, I, I understand like service, like if you were to work on cars or anything, but I like that, you know, at the end of the day, I hold something in my hand. And, and, mm -hmm. and I, I like that. Like I said, that the, the precision, I think was the big thing. It was the, I've always gravitated towards finicky, intricate things. I've often wished I was, you know, some Swiss boy in the 1950s that went into like, <laughs> like horology or something. I love watching people like you, have you guys ever seen when they like put their chin on the desk and they, they use it to keep their head steady when they put together like a pocket watch or something. No, they'll no, purposely put right. their chin on the workbench to steady themselves. And you'll see them take this gear that looks like a grain of rice and they'll push it onto a, a post and then install it in the way. That type of stuff just blows my mind. That sounds incredibly stressful. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. There, you probably have like a screwed up neck and like a goiter from something, or, you know, <laughs> but <laughs> but I it's but, but, just, but, yeah. But you're saying you watch ClickSpring. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. That's a, so. That's so. That was your entry in, and you're you're obviously you're well known for your your amazing brass tools that that as I like to call the maker gold. Uh, what inspired you to? St I know you started with that block plane. What was the inspiration to get that started? Thank you for the compliment. Um, I started out, just a quick career roundup. I, I bounced around to a couple of machine shops. And then about halfway through my career, my adult like working career, I did a, a shift. I went to be a millwright. And I was a millwright for almost seven years at a hydroelectric plant. And in between that time, I had amassed like a small lathe and a small milling machine just because you know i had the opportunity to get them but i wanted to keep my skills up so i was i was a millwright and i i really enjoyed it that was a whole other level of precision like aligning like generators gearboxes you know you have a fifteen thousand pound generator that you have to align to within thousands to a gearbox Jeez. and then there's like you have to account for thermal growth because the gearbox will get warm, so you purposely have to mismatch them. So there was there was a it was a neat level there, but 
I wasn't making. And the, the, one of the things with the hydroelectric is, is I was on call a lot. So you'd go out in the worst weather, you get lightning storms, it takes the plant offline, you have to go restart the plant. I was getting burnt out at work and it was translating at home and I wasn't having, I wasn't making at home. And if I'm not doing stuff with my hands, I get grumpy. And I just got, for lack of a better term, I got depressed and I missed making. So there was a, a machine shop that did a lot of our work because we would just do like basic welding and, and stuff like that. But uh, the guy that ran the shop was an old friend from my first job. And I mentioned to him, it was on like Thanksgiving of 2011. I mentioned to him, I said, you know, hey, if you're ever looking for a machinist, you know, I'm thinking about getting back into it. And I was on call for Christmas and I was out all Christmas day, just back and forth all around upstate New York. Basically, I was just done. I was and it was the 26th. He called me and said, we just had a guy put on our notice. So I went there and this was very the, the boss is very forward thinking and he allows people to use the equipment, you know, within reason. I don't think he would let me do now. He wouldn't let me do the production level I do now. You know, he like if you need to do, they call them government jobs. You know, if you need to do something on the side for yourself or for a buddy, you call them government <laughs> jobs, G jobs. Right. And we were allowed to do to do G jobs on the side. And so, you know, I, I, now I have the keys to a hundred hundred fifty thousand dollars CNC. And this is amazing. So I decided, well, I was going to make a branding iron. So I made a branding iron and then I, I made Jimmy a branding iron. And I didn't know Jimmy at the time. And I was too scared to send it to him. Now looking back mm -hmm. on it, it's like nuts. So I waited like six months and I finally sent it to him and he got it. And of course he was Jimmy as Jimmy and he was over the moon and he was just so happy and just very polite. I remember mm -hmm. when he got that and everything, and he, he said your name and I'm like trying to spell Rouleau. And I'm looking everywhere, and I can't find you because you, you, it's under Hillview Wooden Metal. And I'm like, this guy could make me a branding. I I, I can't find him. Well, I guess I'm just not getting one. That's that was that was it. So so I did that for about a year and a half, and there was a podcast called MakerCast with John Berard, and he interviewed different makers. And for some reason, he he asked to interview me, and he and and he did. It was like a month or two after he messaged me. He's like, I'm doing a giveaway. And he goes, would you like to donate something? And he's like, Mark Spagnolo's doing something. Jimmy Duress is doing something. And I'm just a peon. I, I have no name, notoriety mm -hmm. like those guys do. So I'm like, I got to do something. And I'd always wanted to make a plane because I've, I've been a woodworker since I was 13, 12, 13 years old. You know, I started on the scroll saw and shop class. So I always thought a plane would be something really cool to make. So I let it stew. And I don't, I'm not a big prototyper. I like to build stuff in my head. So the drive to and from work, I would just keep building this thing in my head. And I ended up making that block plane and it. You know, it was, it was a pretty big hit on the, uh, the giveaway that just kind of, I figured, okay, well, I'll make like a dozen of them. And I had, a, you know, I was lucky I had a dozen people that wanted one. And then it just took off from there. Just spiraled out of control. <laughs> In a way, yeah. It, you yeah. Know, it, it, it's, and, and then I, I'd always use the, the squares that I make. I, that, that's more of a machinist thing. 
the double square, but I always liked using them. And it was one of those things where I was like, well, I'll make one. And that slowly, I was talking to a few people at Maker Camp about it. it. I had an Etsy store up and you could just go on and just, just order a square, you know, pick your inlay and if you want steel or, or brass. And it, it ruined my workflow because I would get like two squares a week and I was, you have to batch things out to be profit, you know, to, to be profitable right. to, to a point. So I just decided I was going to stop selling them and just every couple months do like 10 or 15 of them. And the second I closed my Etsy store, demand just shot up because <laughs> it's just, it's, I guess it's just supply and demand. And now it's become like an annual thing where that's how I do my tools is I say, be here at this date and you'll have an opportunity to get, you know, this tool or that tool or. You know, right. unless unless you're PJ Glotti and then you can just say, yo, Tone, I need this <laughs> and bring your bell. And I, I just, you know. Now, I've only done that once, Tony, and that was for you to help me with an auction. So that that's uh, I've, I've not. That was, uh, that was not, one hell of an auction. Though, so. I still got to come up there. I talked about it, you know, what, a month or two back. So Tony is, is holding on to a cast iron based Delta 14 inch bandsaw for me. Which I'm, I'm within probably a month. I'm probably going to be making my way up there sometime before December, before it starts to get crazy. I need to get that, and I need to uh, see what's what as far as I know. It's three phase, but anyway, Tony picked that up for me. It was literally across the street from where he works, and that was that. So I appreciate that help. That was a big, to me, it was a big ask. For you to pick that, that's it's a heavy machine. Well, it's funny. You know? I you, you you message me and you're like you're like, do you have a truck? And I'm like, not really, you know. And I'm like, <laughs> and you said you you go there's an auction in Hudson Falls, New York. And I'm like, I'm standing in Hudson Falls, New York. I'm like, where the heck is there an auction for woodworking equipment? And I'm scratching my head. You you mentioned there was a lot of big industrial stuff. I literally. I'm standing in the machine shop and I look through the big bay door and there's this old factory that used to make huge paper rolls. And I'm like, Oh, it's them. You know, they've been out of business for about a year. And, uh, you know, and then I, luckily I found a, a nice list of cabinet, you know, to piggyback off, you know, you showing me the auction. So that was nice. And again, it was literally across the street. So I was able to, you know, I didn't have to pay any, we were able to drive the fork truck across the street, just load everything up, and it wasn't a big deal. Because sometimes with those industrial equipment, you have to pay riggers to load stuff, and then it just, you know, yeah, stuff gets expensive. What you thought you were getting for cheap gets really expensive really quick. Right. Yeah. Well, it's nice to have yeah. an auction you can drive your own fork truck to. Yeah, just exactly. drive it to yeah. the auction. It was literally across the street. <laughs> right. Yeah, my 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 fork truck's broken, so I, I couldn't could have made it up there. That's that's my problem. But um, you know, I I was I was thinking about it, Tony, while you're talking about the hand plane, and I realized, and maybe I'm I'm I don't think I'm putting an idea in your head here. The block planes are beautiful, but I think when most people think of a hand plane, they think of like a number four. You know, that's like the typical kind of jack plane, and I'm curious, is that in the works? Uh, Harju's bugged me for years about making a smoother. And the way I I would like to someday make a nice smoother and maybe in the infill style, not a traditional cast plane, but a, but an infill where, where wood is, you, ha you have metal and then 
wood fills in the gaps and it just provide, provides it with strength. The way I feel is I don't feel I'm experienced enough in woodworking to know, like I could just take a plane and copy it. But mm-hmm. to me, that's not, that's fine. But I kind of want to know what's going on. Like, why is the, why is the, the blade at a certain angle on this? And it's different. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I understand the basics, you know, you, you tend to have a higher angle pitch for, for more figured wood. But, and the, the other thing too is, is it's going to be a tremendous time to make this thing. Oh yeah. You know, it, sure. to, to, to prototype it and to make it and right now there's, there's a high demand for the other tools and, and, and it's a, it's, it's a double-edged sword. It's, 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 these are all good problems. That's what I always tell myself. Cause I have like a hundred tools I want to make, but when people want, you know, right now I make a plane, a block plane, I make squares, I make these little pocket levels and I also make a bevel gauge. There's, 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 there's a tremendous amount of demand for those. So I can keep, you know, making those and I'm kind of shooting myself in the foot if I don't, you know, cause it's mm-hmm. one thing that I've been lucky in, and I get people that bug me about leaving my day job and the first and foremost thing is, is I like my day job but there's also things like health insurance mm-hmm. you know and then that that's mm-hmm. a that that's a big thing and that's what keeps me going but the nice thing is, is with the tool sales is, is I can I can buy tools and equipment and not you know it's a business expense and, and I'm able to it's not out of pocket and that's the one thing I really like that the the business does it allows me to to build this machine shop that I have in my cellar. What I would like to do end game, I've, I've talked to a few people. What I'd really like to do is once the shop is like paid off is I would like to make like five or 10 tools a year. And that's it. Like real, like crazy, super, like you said, like a real fancy hand plane mm-hmm. and only have, right. you know, and make like five or 10 of them and have a life again and and it and it should make just enough money to essentially keep the lights on buy material cutters you know and not or do i go you know at a certain point you know do i just semi-retire and then make tools full-time i don't know and it's it's tough it's all like i said these are all good problems to have you know and i'm 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 so lucky to have the demand you know and, and that people like the stuff that i do and it's 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 very it, it it's 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 amazing and, and and I'm forever indebted to a lot of people in this community. I, the, I'm listening to you talk about all this stuff, Tony, and, and the immediate thing that has been rolling around in my head, which I I think I don't think anybody else has asked you this: Has anyone tried to purchase a matched set of all your tools? No, I know you mentioned that. I don't know if it was this party or the side party. It was the last one. But you would talk to me about wanting to do. I have guys that have the same inlay, but I don't think anybody across the board. I I don't know. There's people that own like like Wim. You know who Wim is, right? Wim Press. Yeah. Wim yeah. has. I think he ha- he's one of the few people that has everything that I've made, and his all have purple hearted. But mm-hmm. it's not. I don't know how how you would distinguish it being a match set. You know. Well, you do different finishes. You know, you have like the the black oxide. You've got the some of them are, are nickel plated, I think, right? Or, or was it? Um, They're stainless. I offer a stainless, stainless. steel. I do want to get into plating. I would love to do 
like like the little the little small brass squares i would love to gold plate one mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. know or silver plate right. or something like that but that's you know that's again time and equipment I, I would love to do more and that's the other thing is like the squares are so many variables and like next round i want to offer like traditionally when you buy a brass square you get a brass knob but i want to make it to where you can get whatever you want do you want a, a do you want a steel one? Do you want a, a stainless one? Do you want a black oxide? Do you want a heat glued? Like uh, Clickspring does. He's done mm-hmm. a couple of videos on it. Mm-hmm. It's like, from what I found around like 550 degrees, you're essentially tempering the steel, but that color it produces is a very striking blue, and they call it a heat blue. That's what people do for a finish. And it would be neat to offer so people could really super customize what they do that's the torment you're tormenting me right now tony because you know i've got the blue is my color yeah but... and then I I, <laughs> I I remember when you talked about the matching set you wanted you wanted blue in them so well i so when when i came up to see you i, I don't think i don't remember saying matching set but here's what i remember i brought you a piece of japanese maple as a gift and i said whenever you make this and into something, whenever you put it into something, just give me first right of refusal. I, I won't be able to afford it, but I just want to know I was considered. <laughs> what <laughs> if know? I dyed the maple blue, you know? Oh, th- then I'd come to your house and take while you were sleeping. You know, I mean, that's just, <laughs> that, that's all I could do. You know, it's just, I, I mean, I'd like to, you know, if I had, a, if I owned a house, I'd like to take out a second mortgage and get everything that you make, you know? I mean, that's how it is. Someday, maybe, someday. But I mean, it's your stuff is you're probably undervaluing everything that you make. I, I think that you probably could charge more. You know, your stuff is absolutely gorgeous. And, and unlike a lot of people that own your things, if I own the stuff, I would be using it. Like that's not stuff I would just put up on a shelf. Everything that I get from you would be used. And you're familiar with, with Hand Tool Rescue with, with Eric. He offers a wide variety of tools. I have bought his it's the medium size wrench and then the small wrench i don't own anything else from him and i've had this conversation with several people and they said well why don't you buy like the big screwdriver or or the uh, he, he offers um something else anyway i said look i bought these two things because they fill a need in my shop i don't have quality tools like this to take apart vintage machines this is this is it's filling a hole I wouldn't buy, so, um, oh, it was uh, the Maker Knife, Jocko's Maker Knife. So it's a super cool item to have, but I've got like 15 utility knives in my shop. I don't need another utility knife, you know, for for the price, you know? I'm not saying it's not worth the money, but I'm on a budget. You know, the Junk Hunter budget is not large. <laughs> so it, I have to make sure that if I'm purchasing something, it's got to be um, an investment not just something that's trendy. And, you know, I, I don't think, off the top of my head, I can't think of any makers that are producing tools that are inferior quality. Everybody makes that that you and I know, I'm pretty sure, they're, they're good stuff. It's, you know, even if it's something that's just kind of cool, it's still good quality. The Maker Knife is, is a very good utility knife, but it's way out of my price range as far as like, for I don't, I don't need a utility knife. Your stuff... Do I have block planes? Yes, I do. But I would love to get rid of those and just use uh, something that came from a friend. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. in the future, like that's something that I would definitely do. 
at the same time, I don't do a lot of woodworking. I do, I, I restore tools. Uh, I do woodworking like once in a blue moon. So when I do get to use the tools, you know, I, I try to have, like, like you were talking about, you're selling the tools and that's paying for your shop. That's, that's what I've done. Uh, I buy old tools and I sell the old tools. I keep the ones that I like. And all of the tools that I've sold have paid for, if you've seen my shop, it is full of probably, I don't know, I don't know what the value of the tools are, but I haven't, literally, I haven't paid for any of them. Everything that I've bought and sold, all those tools are free. I have, I have, they've been free for years. And like uh, the sander that I just got, that Delta sander, that was paid for like in an instant. Like I, I, I had money in the bank, I paid for it. And then literally the next day, somebody, um, Matt, uh, see Matt make bought a drill press off me that paid for the sander just just like that so I it was free you know I paid 200 but it was literally like it I, it didn't cost no money actually came out of my pocket so I know exactly where you're at with with making the tools but anyway I feel like uh I feel like I'm driving down a road I don't have an end to so we're gonna we're gonna move <laughs> along is there is there anything else in your personal history with machining like okay let's let's do this since we're, we're on the tools if you had no orders, okay, tomorrow. You had you didn't have to make anything. What would be the next tool that you would personally like to make having nothing to do with anybody else? Well, that's kind of how I've told enough people now, but I, I, I try to keep ideas close to my chest because a lot of times they don't they don't materialize. But um, I'm not a, I want to do more like EDC stuff and not like the, not like the, the I don't want to say gimmicky stuff, but like, at work, I, you know, if cutting rough stock, I need a tape measure. And I always love the little gentleman's tape measures. They're small. And I, I want to make like a brass and wood, like six foot tape measure. Because mm-hmm. most times if I'm in the shop, even here or at work, I don't need a fat max 32 foot tape that hangs out right. 15 feet. I'm cutting a piece of wood that's six inches long or two feet long or or if I'm cutting up aluminum for work for parts, again, it's you're talking that size. So I, I would like to make that for myself. And then if it the, the, the problem is with the tape measure, I was thinking about it actually on the way home from work today. The problem with the tape measure is so many variables is, you know, do I do I basically gut a bunch of tape measures to get the blades because a lot of companies unless you're ordering 5,000 they don't want to talk to you you know mm-hmm. if I'm going to order 100 of these it's going to be next to impossible so and the other thing is 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 I like to think that my tools are heirloom tools tape measures aren't heirloom tape measures right. you slip the tape measure retracts you know these things break so it's like yeah. do I want to put my name on something that I know has a finite life you know, I, I, I guarantee everything I do, no matter what I've had, in, in, even if you drop it, I had, I've had two, two people, two people drop planes. The first one was a timber framer that dropped his plane eight feet onto concrete. And luckily wow. the way it hit, it, it actually separated from the dovetails a little bit. I was able to get it back together, peen the dovetails over and just, there was like one little tiny dent. But that's one of the things with the squares, you can do it. But in five or 10 years, if, if this tape measure breaks, am I going to have spare tapes on hand? 
So I think right. I may make that for myself. And the other thing I want to make is, is drum roll is the utility. Mm-hmm. I love the whole knife community and knives and everything, but I am a lazy SOB. I do not like to sharpen anything because I'm not filleting a trout. I'm not gutting a deer. I'm not cutting two inch rope. I'm opening a box. You know, I'm cutting a zip tie off or something. So to me, a utility knife fits for me, but I want to make a really sexy utility. I've had thoughts of, do you know the Milwaukee Fastback? It's no. a it's a flip open Milwaukee utility knife. And the design of it's really nice. And I want to take cues from that, but not blatantly rip it off. But I want to make it compact, but I also want to do like the brass and figure out some way to make a quick change. There's going to be a lot of like R&D in there. There's going to be a lot of thought process that goes in to make this. Because again, you know, it, people are going to abuse it. Uh, that is something that, you know, I, I, I know I could sell and stand behind because there's no, like I said, with the tape measures, there's a lot of operator error that can be involved. You know, it doesn't take much to, to break a tape measure. So, so I, right. the, the things I want to make next when I get time are, are the tape measure and the utility knife. Stuff that I would carry with me that I could put through its paces. And if it does, if I'm happy with how it performs, I'll, I'll, I'll bring it to market. You know, I mean, it, it seems like the the obvious answer to the tape measure is you need to make a solid brass folding rule. And then I've had people that want me to, to recreate that old style carpenter, you know, the, the folding carpenter, which would be fun to do. But again, you know, it, it's it's just this is this has been the one thing is I, I don't know if it's because I'm getting older, but I remember like when a month was a long time. And now I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, I've got a month, you know, and, and I'm like pulling my hair out and it's just, and I know it's because I'm just so busy with everything, but it, it, it this, this, this whole business venture and everything has made me appreciate time so much more. It's just. Mm-hmm. So, so Tony on, on time, and then we're going to, we're going to move on to Tanda, but I, I have, okay, first off I have insomnia. So my sleep schedule is all over the place, but. I work from home, and it seemed like the time to get up for me that was working was 7.30, which for some reason, un- unknowns to me, the last couple months, it has just been shot. Like, I've not been able to get up at 7.30, so I've been getting up way too late. The day is gone. And then somehow I discovered that 7 o'clock is the time. So I've been getting up at 7 o'clock for like the last week and a half, and it's, it's working. I'm getting up on time, and I have the whole day, okay? The whole day today, do you know what I did? I painted drill press parts. That's that's it. Like I got, like what I did like one or two other things, but I spent the whole day painting drill press parts. And I'm like, is is that what I did all day? I just painted stuff. I mean, like I I could have done something else, right? That's but no, that's that's it. You you'd think a whole day wouldn't take that long, but but yeah, you have this is when you get into a rhythm, the time is just gone. It's just gone. And, and a lot of times I feel bad uh, prioritizing things for myself. What I'm doing right now is, is my own personal Delta drill press that I've owned for either two or three years. I can't even remember how long I've had it. But I bought it and I did nothing to it. Like it was still rusty and grimy from when I picked it up. And I've been meaning to restore it for, for years. Just, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm sure it's the same for you. You've got orders to fill. You don't do the thing for yourself because you, you need to 
you know, get orders out for somebody else. That's what I do. I'm constantly fixing machines to sell to other people. Yeah. Well, I don't, when you, when you brought the little 10 inch Delta to me at the party, I dove head first into that thing. And I'm like, and, and I've only done a few tools, restored them, but I love doing it because the machining background, if there's something broken, I can make a new one, but just the painting and just, it's very cathartic to me. And I had to stop. I got like new tires for it. The thing's ready to go. And I was, I was getting ready to make a new motor mount for it. And I had to like basically slap myself and go, there's people that have paid you good money to make them something. You've got to work on that before you can do that. So this, that's going to be my Christmas. I'm hoping to clear my schedule by the holidays and actually have a little bit of time to breathe. And that's the one thing I want to do, but yeah, it's, it's, it's tough when you go down those rabbit holes and, and mm-hmm. you do it. It's the whole, the cobbler's kids have no shoes. I have like one square that I own and it's just, it's a second that's <laughs> beat to that I don't really, I, you know, it, it's, but that's my square and, you know, I love using them and they're very handy, but it's just, I don't like, I have, I have a plane, but it just sits, it was made in the first batch. And it's just sitting up in a cabin. Right. It's, you know. It's just staring at you with contempt. I know. Yeah, I know pretty much. Yeah. So. Well, and when you have that crossover between like what you're making for other people and, and yourself and you walk over to your lathe or to your mill to make something for yourself, it's kind of looking up at you like, you should be using me to make the things that someone's, you know, I mean, I've fallen into that where I owe somebody something or I have a, uh, you know, a commitment to make something for someone and I get an idea over a weekend or whatever and I'm thinking, oh, I'll just knock that out on the lathe. And it's like, I can't look at the lathe without it reminding me that I've got this turning project for someone else that I really should be doing. And it's like, you know, and then you feel guilty about using that tool to just do something for yourself when you know, oh, there's somebody waiting on something that I need to get done. Yeah. So Tanda, why don't we jump into your personal history with machining? Yeah. First, I just think it's interesting as you were talking about your history with making the tools and PJ mentioning the giveaway and stuff. That was kind of about the time I started getting into the maker community. And so I just assumed, you know, that I was coming into the maker community and everything else already existed in the maker community. So it's interesting that I've kind of watched your progression with the tools, kind of unknowing that that's where it started, just thinking, oh, this Tony Rouleau guy is making another plane for a giveaway or whatever, just assuming that, you know, it was the thousandth tool you'd made and this is what you did for a living. So it was kind of interesting hearing that and just realizing that, you know, my time in the maker community has kind of been tracked with your your history of making these these tools. So that was interesting to hear. My history with machining, I grew up doing a lot of work with my dad. I was in and out of a few machine shops and I was always really fascinated with machine shops and the machines, but we didn't really have anything at, you know, in our shop or at home that would have been considered a machine tool. We had basic hand tools and stuff, but I remember him getting things made by machinists, either for work or something we need for our backhoe or bulldozer or something, and just being fascinated by it, but not really having any access to it. And then kind of flash forward to when I was in college and started really wanting to make my own electromechanical gadgets. And I could make the electronics part, 
and I would come up with an idea for a mechanism and I would need an instrument panel or, you know, some little lever arm or something to go with that gadget. I was able to just kind of push that out as like when I get out of school, I'll I'll have the money to have that made. And so then when I first started my business and started trying to make things, I realized when I went to a machine shop to just get something made that, you know, when I was a kid, that was like a favor or it was a friend or it cost a lot more than I was ever aware of. And so the price to get something machined, to just have one thing machined at a busy machine shop was prohibitively expensive. And so I just kind of hit this wall of, well, now I have these mechanical parts for the things I want to make that I can't afford to to have made. And so I started looking at little machine tools and, and kind of like a lot of makers was kind of a, the opinion of like, well, if, if I'm going to continue to just want to make things for as long as I can foresee, two or three of those things, paying for two or three of those things to be made by a machine shop, I could buy an inexpensive little hobby lathe and maybe make them myself. And and you do this justification where you're like, well, I could just buy the machine and then I would just have to buy stock. You know, not realizing that stock and end mills and tool holders and then faceplates and everything else that goes with it. So then maybe, I don't know, few years after I graduated and I was doing my own business, I bought one of the uh, Smithy 3-in-1s, which were real popular in the backs of magazines and stuff, where it was like this mill drill setup, and it was uh, essentially an import, or, you know, it wasn't, wasn't a real tight machine, and I didn't know enough. Someone who was really good at it could probably get one dialed in and working really well, but just out of the box, it was a pretty sloppy machine. And I used that for, I don't know, maybe two or three years. And then I ran out of room in my shop and ended up selling it. Didn't have any, any machining capabilities for a while. And then I bought one of the little, uh, like, 7 by 14 desktop lathes. That kind of kept me, kept me going for a little while. And I had some laser cutting abilities and stuff. And so I just started making things out of plexi and wood and finding ways to just get things done. And eventually I bought one of the little Sherline uh, mills that was CNC'd. And so that was kind of my introduction to CNC was the little little Sherline mill. I bought an, an other mill, which was, or I had one access to one at the makerspace. And that was uh, another little CNC mill that I had a chance to play with. And I just kind of got the bug to do machining and just kept looking for inexpensive, bigger machines or CNC machines. And so I did kind of a really big jump from the 7x14 to an MSC 13x40 lathe and from the Sureline CNC to my Fidal 30x16 CNC. So I kind of went uh, from real hobbyist to actual usable machines in one one year's time, three or four years ago. I, I really enjoy machining. I wouldn't call myself a machinist, but I I think I'm just attracted to being able to do a product from end to end and not have to iterate with someone else, pay a machine shop to do a prototype of a mechanical part, realize there's something I'd like to change on it, go through sending them drawings, getting quotes, getting a part machined. You know, I want to be able to do that at 3 a.m. and just make the part and kind of design as I go, where I do a few ops on the part. And as I'm doing them, I realize I want to change something to make it easier to make. And so I just 
change course midway. Whereas if I gave the drawing to the machine shop, I'd get back what I, you know, what I gave them the moment that I was at that point. And by the time they've quoted it, made it, got it back to me, it's not, I've, I've moved on. <laughs> I, I wish I would have done something else. And if I'm doing it myself, I can iterate a little faster. I think that that's kind of how I came to, to doing the machining. I really enjoy it. I don't know if it's just that, that it's metal or it's the precision or what it is about machining versus other like woodworking or something. But I think it's just the mechanisms are, are something that I want to make. And it goes well with the electromechanical stuff where you can't really make electromechanical stuff out of wood that has the same precision. So that's kind of my my history of machining in a nutshell. And now my machine sits for weeks without even being turned on, which is a shame. So I'm trying to get to the point where I've got to the point where I'm not doing a lot of machining for my day job at my shop, just free gratis because I want to get it done. So I think I've taken the step to not just giving away machining for free, but then I haven't turned that time into doing machining for myself things I want to do. So that's that's the next step is to not work at the day job and then come home and work on stuff for the day job on my machines and start actually doing makey, makery stuff again on my machines. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. It's about time. Yeah. PJ's been after me. PJ's been yeah. a good influence on that as far as that goes because uh, he harasses me once a week about uh, spending way too much time making stuff, doing, working at the day job and then coming home and making stuff to take back to the day job the next day. Yeah. Uh, basically so. I, I tell her, stop working so much. <laughs> well, I mean, it's that, I mean, we all enjoy what we do. So it's, it's not like I'm begrudgingly machining. I enjoy, enjoy doing the machining when I get back, but it's, uh, it's just a matter of, uh, you know, what I'm, what I'm being paid to do at work and what I'm giving up for free to just keep making it at the shop. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. well, unlike the two of you, my machining history is not quite a, as illustrious. My first recollection of coming into contact with some type of machining environment, I remember this, it was a fleeting moment. I was looking for a part time job. I was right out of high school and it was in between high school and college. And I was looking for some place to make money. And there was an ad that I can't remember what the ad was for, but it was like in a newspaper. This was this how long ago this was. It wasn't online. And that it was I remember it was in Dover, New Jersey. And I went there for an interview and I walked into this machinist shop and I saw all these machines that I had no idea what they were. Like it was just like a bunch of machines look like they could grind up your hands. That's that's my impression. I had gone in there coming out of high school. Um, I had a wealth of electronics knowledge. I was basically like the best student um, that my electronics teacher had. So I thought I could kind of spool that into some sort of mechanical job. And that's that's what this place did. They, they were a machinist shop. But I walked in there and the guy talked to me and he starts asking me all these questions. And I'm like, nope, nope. I don't know what that is. Nope, nope. And he's like, yeah, I don't think you're going to be a fit here. (laughs) (laughs) So then I was like, all right, thanks. And I left. And then um, there was a gap of several years and I was married. And my wife's family, my father-in-law's brother, built race cars. Not full-time. He was a mechanic full time, but on the side, 
he built and raced race cars like dragsters. And he's like, hey, you want to see something cool? I'm like, yeah, sure. So he pulls me into this room and there is what I believe was a an EDM machine. He He's explaining it to me and I see that there's a part in there and the part has this shape that's like a whole bunch of like concave, like I can't even describe what it was. It was probably some part of an engine. But then he says, okay, you see that shape there? I said, yeah. He says, all right, now look up. And up above that shape was the exact opposite. It was the negative. And he says, mm-hmm. that was a block. And we used this machine and we pushed down with that and it dissolves the metal into that shape. And I'm like, man, that's really cool. I have no idea what I would do with that, but it's really cool. <laughs> it's really you know? cool. And, and then that was it. Like from then onward... I had no exposure to any kind of machining. I didn't know anybody that was a machinist. Uh, And I didn't really know until I got into the maker community that machining was accessible. I didn't know, like I thought it was something that you had to be like highly trained in, highly skilled, like it had to be like super specialized. And if you weren't like, you know, in that, that circle of people, then that was it. You 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 just were out. Like that was one of those things. It was like being like a like a nuclear scientist. Like if you're if you didn't go to school for nuclear science, you can't build a nuclear power plant because you don't know what you're doing. That's how I viewed, you know, being a machinist. And then I get into the community and I see people like Jimmy who are flat out tell you, I don't know what I'm doing. Let's try it and see what happens. And then they just they go at it. And I'm like, oh I could do that. I could turn a handle and move a cutter over a piece of metal, that's not hard at all. I know what that is. And so very slowly, I started to understand that these machines that were, in my untrained eye, sort of like mysterious, were very, very basic. They like I, I started to really examine them and go, I understand exactly how 80% of this works, and the other 20% I don't know because I don't have one. And if I have one, then I can figure it out because I am mechanically inclined. I was a professional troubleshooter for 11 years fixing copiers and print systems, which are electrical mechanical systems. Most of the lathes and mills, unless they have a DRO, all it is is motors, gears, and belts. That's it. And I'm like, I know what all those things are. I've dealt with way more complex machines. So I have been on the lookout for machinist tools. I have I have a collection of Starrett and some Brown and Sharp and a couple other things that are all like, you know, the the measurement tools, micrometers, calipers, things like that that I've been amassing. But every time I see a lathe or a mill, my immediate problem is even if it's a deal, I have zero space or way to move said machines. You know, like I really need a trailer to move something like that. And even if I could get it, like it would have to be, but it would be in my driveway. Like I can't get it into my shop. My shop is mm-hmm. full of machines that I'm restoring. Like, okay, the Delta 6x48 sander, the reason I got that was actually for metalworking. That was the reason. It wasn't for woodworking. I got that so that I could set that up. I've got a set of, I can't remember if it's zirconium or whatever it is, but I've got a set of metal grinding belts on the way that are going on that sander. That is exactly what it's for. I have plans. I have a lot of plans. And in some future date, I will have a fully working machinist setup. 
But personally, the only thing that I could say I probably considered machining is I have an obsession with knurling and I got it into my head and I, I should have, I, I actually did a video on it that I never published because it was supposed to be part of a bigger video. I got it into my head that I could take a plumber's pipe cutter and remove the cutting wheels and put knurling wheels in there and turn it into a knurler. And it can be done, but you need to modify it. So the bottom of the C of the cutter is where um, it's, it's kind of narrower. So you need to widen it to make room for a knurler to fit in there, the knurling wheel. So I put an end mill on my 1948 Delta DP 220 drill press, and I turned that into a mill. And I milled out this slot in this pipe cutter big enough to get the knurler in there. And I mean, it was totally janky. Like I was, there was nothing was secure. I was holding it with two hands. I was, I was like, this was probably the most dangerous thing I've ever done. I don't, I don't know. It was, it was not a big end mill, but I mean, I was like sitting there, like I was basically like, uh, almost, how, how would you even describe it? It's almost like if you were, uh, holding something and sanding it, I was holding something and end milling it. Like it was not in a vice. <laughs> This was like the worst possible example of machining. Freeform in milling. Yeah, it was terrible. It was terrible. But when I got done, I had something that would knurl. Like it actually worked. It did what I what I wanted it to do. There's a tool like that that exists and they're highly coveted. There was yes. a company that made them for a while. And I think Jimmy owns like two of them, but they're, yeah, he's they're got very... Them. Like the yes. crush knurlers that come in yeah. from the top. and yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like a handheld scissor knurl where it comes down. And uh, that that's interesting. I never thought of the, the, the pipe cutter, you know. Yeah, I, since then, I've actually gotten a bigger one. I've got a reed pipe cutter that's, oh, God, it's got to be 18, 24 inches. Like, it's big. And I actually I want to retrofit that with another set of knurlers because the the one that I adjusted... I think the maximum capacity is like maybe an inch and a half. Like I could get stock that's an inch and a half round into that. Um, I want something that'll do bigger because my idea was actually to knurl the lock washers for drill presses. I want brass lock washers. Mm -hmm. That's the goal. And the quilt, I don't... like the quill stop? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Almost every single one that I've run into... The knurling is, it's vertical. Yeah, um, there, Yeah, there are a couple where it's a crosshatch. I prefer the crosshatch, but I want them in brass. Nobody makes them in brass. Every single one I've seen right. is in steel. Like I said, if I get everything in brass, th then I'm good. That's, that's, I love, that's why right. I love your stuff, you know? So that's it. That's, that's the extent of my machining experience. Well, the little, the little lathes, like the little, you know, seven by 14 lathes, little bench top lathes don't take up a lot of space. And there's bound to be people like me that are trading up, you know, to other machines or whatever. And if you kind of retrofit them with uh, a tool holder that makes sense, like a quick change tool post and stuff that you can get from little machine shop, they would be handy for just knurling little brass pieces and so forth. And then you could use a traditional knurling tool in them just a scissor neural or something and it it doesn't take up a lot of space i mean i've had one kicking around for a long time if you ask me real nice i i will send it to you <laughs> okay i think so, uh the one of the big things is, is 
10, 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago, you didn't see you didn't see metal lathes in people's shops or garages. And nope. I think I think what a lot of it is 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 these is manual machining unfortunately is going away in a job shop atmosphere because and, and a CNC lathe can replace five to ten manual lathes. So why have them take up room? So you see the market is now flooded. You see the little South Bends everywhere because mm-hmm. these, you unfortunately too, school programs are going out, so those get flooded. Bridgeports, we we I work in a full job shop and we have one Bridgeport. It gets used every once in a while, but I remember twenty five years ago when I started the machine shop I was at had twenty Bridgeports, and there was a guy right. at every one. Mm-hmm. And it's just not that way anymore because actually it was the it was a year after I started working. It was in '98. They realized it was it was more advantageous to take. We were called manual machinists to take the manual machinists and teach them how to run the CNCs. And we learned conversational programming on uh, on Mazak vertical milling machines. And that was like you know you, when you go to machine school, you learn a little bit of everything. But that was like my first introduction into CNC. And there's this constant struggle and argument that. You don't need to know manual machining to run a CNC, and in theory, you don't. But there's so many like school of hard knocks things you learn when you turn a cutter, when you feed a cutter in a bridge port, you get you get that feedback in your hand, mm-hmm. and it's the same way with a lathe. With with a CNC, it's sight and sound, and when you get that tactile feel, you know, oh, that cutter makes that noise and it's bouncing. I can feel it in my hand, you know, to do something different. And it's kind of a loss. It's becoming a lost art, the manual side of things. But I understand why they just want, they just want people to hit the ground running on a CNC because it's more, you know, if, if you're cranking out widgets, it doesn't really matter if that person knows. I just feel manual machining makes you a more all around machinist and then there's people that argue that uh, cnc machinist isn't a true machinist and then there's a whole match on that end but i feel you you should have some basic skills in machining to know what you're doing not just you know you're you know there's certain shops where there's a single programmer or multiple programmers and they make the program and then guy down, the next guy down just sets up the machine and just runs it. I don't, to me, right. that's... Which is probably less, uh, the, the person who's the operator or the person just running the machine probably needs less of that manual experience if you're set up like that because the person programming it is the person that kind of has that manual experience that takes that into account when creating the program. And yeah, then... and, and thankfully, that's one of the things I like about where I am is... I'm pretty much, you know, soup to nuts. It's I'm right. doing the program and I'm also running the part. I don't think I could sit in a desk and just program all day and crank programs out. Cause that's not, like I said, again, that's the maker in me wanting to have a tangible result at the end of the day. And that's why I like my day job is cause it's, it's a small shop. We do, I mean, a 50 piece run is a lot. That's like a high, right. you know, it, it's, it's all a lot of it's custom equipment or one Z two Z type things, mm-hmm. and uh, but I think because of the rise of CNC is becoming so 
machine shops or even small machine shops can there's a there's a point of entry for them you're seeing the market flooded with bridge boards and and these little lathes and and but you also have guys like youtubers like a bomb and stuff that have like he's got a shaper which is Mm -hmm. yeah kind of a renaissance of like it is it is like there's there's no i've never seen a shaper and i i mean i i've seen i i've seen one in my 25 years and it was in a corner with dust on it it's just it's not you know modern milling machines have replaced it but it's neat to see that and and I and you're starting to see all of a sudden these shapers are becoming available because people are finding them in warehouses. Right. Then if you're like, uh, you know, a bomb or or fireball tools, then you have to dream up things to make that are so large a shaper makes sense again. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But you have companies like like Tormach, and you can actually have a, a CNC in your garage or in your home shop and i think there is like a almost a machining renaissance with the maker movement coming on right and well and it's crazy it's crazy to think that you could just pick up cnc i mean not so long ago it would be ridiculous to think of someone having a cnc in their shop just like back in the day it would have been odd to find someone with a bridge port in their home yes yeah and 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 also the the advances in the software too it's very easy i run I run a five-axis Haas every day at work, and the CAM software it does ninety-nine point nine percent of the work. I, I mm-hmm. have you have to know how to make the part. You have to know speeds and feeds, but I don't have to think about G code. I mean, I can of course I can read it and know what's going on, but I don't. Right. You just but you're just kind of pointing at the bottom of a pocket and saying, "I want to do an adaptive cut for everything in this pocket." Yeah. Selecting edges, telling it how much I want to take, and it's it's just amazing. And, and you think about, like you said, there was a guy reading a chart from a computer, and then two other guys. You think about how refined that is. Take a, a machinist from 2021, and it's not meant to be derogatory, but that replaces I don't know how many. I've heard salesmen tell me it's like 70 to one, and I think that's BS. But the output you can do with these machines is, you know, you could, you could easily replace 10 machinists because back in the day they had to sit and they had to do trig. They'd have to do all these formulas and then they'd have to set up gauge blocks and which are like super, Mm -hmm. people don't know they're super precision ground blocks to set like an angle. And then they had to check it and then they take the cut. You just go up, you know, you bring in a CAD file from a designer and just, select edges and tell it how fast to go and you know right you know it, it there is a there is a skill to cnc and that's the one thing is, is i've i've even dealt with management at previous jobs that think you just kind of walk up to the machine and you, you hold the blueprint in front of it and you grunt that you want <laughs> two and all of a sudden the vending machine spits out two pieces it doesn't work like that because i've always told people the keys are in it go ahead and try to do something but it's just you know it, it it's just advances in time it's it's like the luddites that couldn't deal with the looms that could make could outperform them you know right. 10 to 1 or 100 well and it's a and it's a different skill set i mean running the software and and the sort of things that the software allows you to do you would have never like sat down and written g code to do an adaptive cut 
it was just kind of out of the question, you, you know, because you found a different way to do it. You changed the design or something. And now because we, because it's so easy to just have the software do it, we can do things that would have been next to impossible to do on, on a manual machine or on a CNC where you had to actually sit and write the G code line by line. Yeah. And like you said, if you have like a, a weird radius or something back in the day, you'd have to set up a grinder and you'd have to grind a form tool and then check it. And this, you just tell it to use a ball mill and step over and it, you know, depending on how long you want to take, you can make it as fine or as coarse as you want. It's just time and, and code. Right. You're not sitting there looking through a comparator grinding <laughs> grinding a mill to yeah. When it comes to the makers though, I think there's two things that we need to factor in here because we're we're not we're not factories. Okay. So there's there's two things as far as like the 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 mechanical side, the non CNC versions of the milling and the lathes and stuff. Doing it by hand is fun. That's, yeah, there's a romance to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. there is. So that's definitely a thing to keep in mind. Is you're you know you're you're shaping metal. That's not something that's you know you, you can't do it many ways unless you're a blacksmith. Like if you're either, you're either a blacksmith right. or you're a machinist or you're not shaping metal. Like those are the only two options, and both of those have advantages. But the other thing is when it comes to like the CNC stuff. Like I have plans for a CNC, but like my first CNC is not going to be like a little tiny one. It's going to be like a like a five by ten. That's going to be like my first. Like I have a three D printer, mm-hmm. which is technically a CNC, but my plans for CNC is very very specific. So it it, it is an efficiency thing. And when I say CNC, I mean like a wood CNC, not a not a like a right, metal. like a CN, CNC router. Right. So there's an efficiency that's involved uh, when it comes to um, CNC stuff. And here's the example. I would like to, my, my, my lady and I want to buy a property and we want to make it our own. And part of that is we like round topped doors. We don't like square rectangular doors. We want the rounded arch. Because of that, I want to get a large CNC and I want to carve all the doors, not just arched, I want them engraved like tapestries with scenes. Mm-hmm. And that's something that is perfect for a CNC to do. Now, could I do that by hand? Yeah, but it'd take me like four months to do one door. You know what I mean? Like to do it to right. the level of detail? No. So the, the point is, there is an efficiency. If you have to make 20 doors for a house, you don't do them all by hand. You find a way to do them. You know, you you make like let's say I don't know five different designs in CAD, and then it makes the doors for you. You know, and then you do the other work that needs to be done, like the hardware and hanging the doors and all that stuff. But I mean, Tony, I've been in your shop. You've got the uh, the 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 metal CNC in there, but you've got uh, you, you just got the. Um, what what is this the flattener? My mind went blank. The grinding tool that you set up with the sanding bed. surface the grinder. surface grinder. So you've got the surface grinder that is completely analog. You've you've got a a, a mill in there that's a analog mill. You know used by hand. You've got plenty of things that are not computer controlled. So while the computer controlled mill is running, you have other things you can be doing. And that that's that's a that's one of the main things people ask me when I talk to them about 
like my tools, they ask how much is done on the CNC. And I, I think it's, it's right around like 30%, you know, the CNC, like with a square, it does the blank and it cuts the inlay pocket. And then from there, a lot of people like to think that they, things come off the CNC and they're mirror finish and everything, but no, there's, you know, there's the, the mill has deflected a half of a thousandth, which is like a minute amount. But when you're trying to make a precision tool like a square and make it, it's a high dollar item and make it as, as fine as possible, it has to go to a surface grinder or it can be within like a tenth, a tenth of a thousandth, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it gets hand ground. And then I cut the slot for it and it's fitted and there's, there's, just there's a tremendous amount of handwork too because from the ground surface i actually hand sand it to give it a brushed finish and there's there's so much more work than just like i said putting the blueprint in front of the machine and grunting Hmm. and you know if if you're running if you're trying to make production then yes you take the extra time to make sure you know everything is perfect with a cnc but there's there's a lot of times where there's a lot of secondary operations that have to be done. It, this doesn't, it doesn't just spit out a Maserati, you know, you, there's so many <laughs> things you have to do. You, you have to do to it to get it, you know, to, to like, well, like I said, with my tools, the CNC basically roughs out the parts. And then from there I have to refine. It. You heard it here first folks. Tony makes Maserati tools. <laughs> If you didn't know already. Well, sucky darn, I think it's time for one of them old-timey commercial energy lubes and stuff. Hi, y'all. This is Edna down at Johnson's Hardware. Are you starting out as a machinist? Or maybe you're an experienced machinist, but you're tired of dull and chipped end mills? Well, we have just the thing for you. Cousin Eddie's Endless End Mill. That's right. It's the mechanical pencil of end mills. If you get a chip or your end mill dulls, you just twist the tool holder and more end mill comes out. Just like sharpening a mechanical pencil, if you could call it that. Once it comes out, you're ready to run again. No more setting tool heights or anything else. You're just ready to cut. Give it a twist and you're ready to go. End mill comes out sharp as can be. Just like a mechanical pencil, it has a built-in eraser. That's right, a chip eraser. So if you just take off that little silver cap, you can pull out the eraser. And if you've just cut a pocket and forgot to set your tool wear and the pocket is a tenth too big, you can erase those chips right back onto the part. And it'll be just right to cut again. Endless end mills come in 27 and 54 foot lengths. If you're set up on a horizontal, you're good to go. Just open up the shop door and let it hang out the shop. If you're on a vertical, you may have to add a third story. A few things to be aware of are end mill whip. If you're running over 500 RPM, the top of the end mill can tear out the roof or the garage door. The Cousin Eddie's endless end mills are just $57.43 a piece. You'll find them out back behind because we can't keep them in the store. You'll find us at patreon.com forward slash maker skills what the heck nabbit i need to get me one of them anyone know what street patreon is on i need to go all right it's time for crossbreeding tony what skill goes well with machining computer skills i mean in this day and age uh math skills too math is a huge one with machining you have to have strong math skills that is a skill 
whether it's imperial or metric, you're you're working, you know, with fractions, decimals, all kinds of, you know. I got to say, this is like right off the cuff, way better an answer than I would get out of Tom. I, I, I got to Thank you, Tony. <laughs> Usually I, I go to Tom, Tom first. I'm just going to say it. I miss Tom. <laughs> You know, I don't know. the The whole podcast seems to be going way smoother when Tom's not here. I I, I don't know what else to say. Uh, Tanda, what skill goes well with machining? I would say a, a visualization. I think kind of three D visualization is a good skill for machining. It's just kind of seeing where things are in space and knowing how to do setups and and visualizing where materials coming from. I I would have said math skills, but but you let Tony go first. So, but, and not, not like really, you know, complicated math skills either. I mean, trigonometry, you know, sometimes depending on, you know, if you're doing manual machining, especially, but just good basic math skills. And you see, or at least I heard a lot when I, during the brief time that I was the manufacturing manager at my previous job, our machine shop was forever complaining about being able to hire people with just you know, being able to do basic addition, subtraction with decimals, convert between units, and, you know, just, just pretty straightforward stuff. So that's probably some commentary on our school system. I, I do all that stuff with an app on my iPhone. I'm just saying. Well, there you go. As for me, uh, I'm going to go with metallurgy. I think that is a great skill to have if you are working with metal uh, the more you know, I think the better you're going to be. And uh, I think that there's, I, I, Tony would know better than me, there's got to be hundreds of different kinds of alloys out there for sale, you know, mm -hmm. and and who, the the structure of these things is so exacting depending on the application. I think that that alone uh, it requires your some knowledge at at least a base level in order to do machining without, you know, messing things up. Yeah, just the way things cut can be a huge difference. I mean, just just at first blush, having never done it, you would think that copper and brass would would be similar in some way. But brass is like the easiest thing possible to machine, and copper is a pain in the butt. And now it's time for Give Me Your Best Guest. Yeah. All right, Tony, we know that machining is your number one skill, but we need your top five. What is the number two skill in your arsenal? You talked about it. It was strong with you, too, and, and I don't think makers talk about it enough, and that is troubleshooting. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Uh, being able to, to troubleshoot is huge to, to, to assess the situation, you know, and, and use process of elimination and figure out different ways around uh, an issue or if one of your tools is broken, being able to, to troubleshoot. I truly believe that is something that should be taught in school to children. You know, that is a life skill. I have seen people firsthand that something happens to them, not, not machining or making or anything, something happens to them out in the real world and they don't know what to do. They have zero skill set to troubleshoot the problem. And they just stop. They just they just stare. They don't have any any anything. They have no tool set to use to assist them. So yeah, I'm a big proponent of, of troubleshooting. 
Go ahead, Tanda. Oh, no, I was just going to say that I think that troubleshooting almost has to be learned in the real world. I mean, it's hard to teach troubleshooting. You kind of have to have things go wrong in odd ways and, and learn it. And if you haven't really been exposed to it, then it's difficult to, you know, to teach troubleshooting. You just kind of have to throw someone into a situation where they have to use troubleshooting to develop those skills almost. You've never been to copy or repair school. <laughs> so, But they don't, I mean, they give you you know, things that are broken and you have to fix them, right? I mean, I don't think that they just right. say, here's, here's the textbook on troubleshooting. No, they give you a machine that's not working and they say, figure out why it's not working. And you have to go through the troubleshooting process to figure out what's happening. You know, what is it like? Usually all they've done is like put a bunch of pieces of paper in front of sensors and you have to troubleshoot which sensor it is. You know, but every once in a while something will be unplugged or something, you know, the big right. part will be missing. So there, it is possible to teach troubleshooting if you have it set up. Well, that's what I'm saying, but it's a very practical, it's almost like a vocational type training that that is difficult or you know, with the, with vocational training missing out of schools, a big part of that was troubleshooting and, you know, like, oh, that happened, but I still want to make my project. So how can I, how can I fix that? How can I recover from that? I, yeah. I, I agree with you, but I think it could be applied to a wider range of things. I think that troubleshooting could be applied in any number of classes. I don't know why, but I keep thinking of cooking and sewing. You know, things go wrong when you're when you're making food and things go wrong when you're sewing and you have to know how to fix those things. And they're not necessarily things that are broken. They're choices that need to be made. You need to identify things. And I think that's what life choices, you know, you have to identify the things that need attention. And if you can't do that, then then you, where are you going to go? You know what I mean? Like you don't even know who to ask at that point. But yeah. It's it's a uh, it's vastly undervalued in society, I, I think. But let's get back to Tony. Tony, what is skill number three? Uh, I have a strong woodworking uh, background. Like I said, I, I started on scroll saws and stuff when I was 13, 12 or thirteen, and it just progressed from there. I mean, woodworking was my main maker hobby before even the, the tools took off. I would you know do things around the house or make furniture, you know, stuff to hang on the wall. Now, did you learn that from your dad or did, did you develop that on your own? I learned basics from my father. My, my dad is, my dad is an accomplished woodworker, but he doesn't do it a lot. So like he would do a few things here and there, but he taught me how to use the table saw. He's more of a, like a around the house type. This needs to be fixed or do this or, you know, like, he built a garage, you know, it, it, it's not like fine woodworking, he would say. He's a handyman. Yes, exactly. And that's where I learned mm -hmm. the tools from. And from there, my, my, the maker in me wanted to learn how to do different things. And I, I'm self-taught with woodwork. Yeah, I think like a lot of us are. A lot of us are. I, I had uh, personally, I had very, very little maker training from my father. You know, there was not a lot of woodwork done in my house. There was a scroll saw, and and that was it. Like, I don't even remember any other woodworking tools specifically. But he built model planes, which for, I think, almost everything was cut with razor blades, like exacto blades. He, you know, this, there wasn't really, everything's made out of balsa wood. You could snap it with your fingers. So you didn't need any heavy-duty saws or anything like that. 
All right. Skill number four. I have a decent uh, uh, background in electrical. Um, one thing I am jealous of is Tanda's electrical, like electronic skills. Like mm-hmm. when I see on her Instagram and stuff, I'm always envious of that. That's one thing I never really uh, had an opportunity. When I was with, I, like I have a modular home, but I wired the whole, the entrance and everything. I have a strong residential and then I have enough industrial to be dangerous uh when i was a millwright we weren't a union millwright so we were we had to do a little bit of everything so i'm i know enough to to troubleshoot three-phase motors uh wire them you know stuff like that motor contactors Mm -hmm. which is nice for you know the surface grinder the lathe my my standard manual lathe that my manual mill are all three phase so i have to have you know installing them i was able to wire and I didn't have to have an electrician come in or, you know. Are you using an inverter or are you? I have a VFD for the the mill and it's a shared VFD for the mill and the surface grinder. But the, the, the my lathe is a tool room lathe that is a variable speed. So it has a VFD on it already. And, she, mm-hmm. and I was told you can't have two VFDs in mine. Right. And uh, I was very lucky. I uh, got a... a of rotary phase converter given to me and i use right. that for the, for the lathe and the the, the tormach i have a tormach cnc mill and the, the lathe are both just 220 single phase which is really nice right yeah. that's that's like that's the, the way to go i think the rotary phase converter that's that's my goal also since there's no way i'm getting three phase into anywhere that i ever live yeah and you know where i live there's no <laughs> i can't do even you, imagine do you watch joe pisinski videos because all all of his lathe stuff it's like every time he turns on his lathe it's like and then you and then you hear the lathe come on so it's always the rotary phase converter and then the lathe it seems so we're at number five what's your fifth skill uh probably uh maker wise it would be digital fabrication i'm not like like that was one thing is i wanted to kiss tom's butt i'm loving all the the 3d printed stuff he's been doing the, the little, you know, the, the jigs and everything he's been doing has been great. But I have a laser cutter and a 3D printer and obviously digital fabrication for CNCs is a big thing. But I know enough to be dangerous in those departments. And I, I think that's a, a strong skill I have. I think that's a skill that a lot of us are coming up in. Sure. Yeah, definitely. And, 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 yeah, that's something that you're going to almost have to have because, you know, 3D printers, it's been, you know, five years since they've really you know i mean i know they've been out for a long time but it's been like five years since they've been really there's been like uh affordable to hobbyists yeah you know and they just keep coming down in price it's not a big deal to get a printer anymore. well i think that that it's not it the price has come down but also the quality has gone up absolutely yeah because my first one I think I got like four or five years ago. It was a, called a printer bot, and that was a cheap one, like a dirt cheap one, and that was six or seven hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. And I haven't, I just have an Ender Pro, and that was under two hundred, and it's night and day better mm-hmm. than than the printer bot. And the printer bot was a nice printer. It's just technology has just got better and better. And right, mm-hmm. you know. well, and a lot of those early printer manufacturers from way back. 
had a lot of patents that really had a lot of the homebrew stuff locked down and the smaller companies where they couldn't couldn't really make a good printer without infringing on the myriad of patents that those early people had that got out there really early. And then as those patents started expiring and they you know weren't renewing certain aspects of the printer, then the the hobbyists and the homebrew inexpensive printers started adopting those things, which made them better and better. Yeah, I probably like FDM got you know old. Yeah. it was old technology to them, so they didn't push right, that, and know? so they weren't renewing and trying to pursue those patents for heated build chambers and dual nozzles and and feed mechanisms and stuff that were kind of old news to some of the real expensive, you know, early people. And so then those patents became, or that, that technology became available. And then there was this explosion of of affordable printers. So, so now we're just waiting for all the three D metal printers to become affordable. That's that's the next. Uh... Well, and and they're becoming. I mean, the the metal filament printers are becoming. You know, somewhat. You know, a maker space could afford them. Certainly, or a really serious maker could afford them. And the same with the resin printers. I mean, that was the first three D printers. Were the early stereolithography machines. You know, back in the late 80s, early 90s. And the idea of having one yourself was just ridiculous back then. And now and now you can get one. You have outlets like Shapeways where you can design something and have it metal printed. Mm-hmm. I mean, unless you're doing a ton of prototyping or you want to keep something close to your chest, it's not that big of a deal to have stuff printed. You right. Know? Like you said, if you walk into a machine shop and you say, I want one of these widgets, it's going to be x amount of dollars and it can scare you if you walk into a machine shop and say i want a hundred of these it's a different story and you can they can kind of bury the mm-hmm. price and, and that's what's nice about companies like you know that and printers or there's no worrying about setup and stuff like that there's no prices right. there's no tooling and no we can't do that if you did this it's going to be half the price and Right, or companies like Shapeways that have taken that programmer, like the CNC shops who have someone that's just doing programming. The Shapeways of the world have taken that and and looked at all the commonalities of that and basically put it into an AI that does that whole front end for them that just feeds it to a machine. And the, and the people like Send Cut Send that just all of that front end that people who were doing quotes and people who were setting up programs and all of that you know, they've realized, oh, this can all be automated and turned into an AI that just knows the best decisions to make. So it's really, really changing, making things affordable. Was that our best guess? I don't know, but it was a guest. All right, it's time for short and sweet. Tony, do you have anything to wrap up the show? Thank you guys for having me. It's been fun. Like I said, I miss Tom, but you guys have been great. And uh, if anybody wants to see the stuff I make, uh, Hillview underscore WM on Instagram. That's about it. Well said. To the point. Precision. 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 Person of few words. Tanda? Well, yeah, definitely go follow Tony on Instagram or anywhere else you can find him and check out his, his tools. They are definitely amazing. Tom and I tried to sneak away with his sample case but you know he was right there at the uh, at the maker event this weekend. So yeah, Tony and I just saw one another in person, which is a little odd. Like <laughs> what two days ago? Yeah, yep. And then I traveled halfway across the country to Zoom call him back and have a conversation. 
We did um, speak very poorly of you, PJ, just so you know. So you- that's that's what I expect. Yeah, we were we were trying to guilt PJ into coming, but uh, we were we were unsuccessful. But yeah, uh, yeah no, just uh, that's really what I wanted to to shout out to just go and and check out Tony's amazing work. And you know, I do you have YouTube? Are you doing any YouTube stuff as well? No, I, it, I'm so busy. The thought of trying to 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 document it is time. I barely do a decent job on Instagram. So, yeah, yeah. but I I have a, a a YouTube channel to comment and stuff, but I haven't done a video in quite a while. It's all older stuff. And I'm definitely going to go check out that book that you you mentioned, The Perfectionist. That sounds good. Yeah, so I'm going to personally audio, I'm going to go The audiobooks do that. Done well too. So, that's if if, if you're I'm more of an audiobook type person because if I like at nighttime, if I go to read, I just fall asleep. <laughs> and PJ claims he's found the movie, so we'll have to we'll have to look for that. It's very exciting. It's very yeah. exciting. And PJ, short and sweet. Well, um, when I was on my way down into New Jersey to get the Procutioner drill press, uh, I listened to. I was behind on podcasts, so I listened to Making It, and I mm-hmm. listened to. Uh, the Fits All podcast. And to my surprise, uh, Jimmy DeResta shouted me out on both podcasts. <laughs> I did not know that was going to happen. I I am behind. Uh, one of the things he, he mentioned is he, he had this set of Ryobi cordless power tools and Tom picked it up. It was at Tony's party at the slip and slide. Tom picked it up. But out of that set, I grabbed um, the vacuum. And I have been meaning to do a spoof restoration video on the vacuum because it was Jimmy's. And he mentions it on the podcast. And um, so I'm I'm behind, but it's like it's on my list. I, I've, I've been trying to clear off the table where the video needs to be shot. And I've got it like 50% cleared. So I'm like, I'm very close to actually shooting the video. And I've got <clears throat> I've got special stuff. Like I, I had to have things, uh, things, things uh, ordered and sent to me in order to do the video. So it's gonna be, it's gonna be some. I don't, I don't want to say high production value, but there is some attire involved. I will, I will say that. Um, and I want to thank our top Patreon supporters, which are very own Tanda Madison on Instagram and Creator Nader. And we don't have any new Patreons this week, but you can be a Patreon if you go to patreon.com forward slash maker skills and just give up a little change you know i mean we're not asking for rouleau money here just a tiny bit pennies (laughs) on the dollar here you know and uh you could help us uh upgrade the equipment and uh, you know keep us running we've been on for uh, a little over a year now we we missed two weekends this is episode 51 so 52 would have been a year but we missed two so actually last week was our one year anniversary so i I don't know if that proves anything other than we're too stubborn not to do the show but um but yeah there's that so uh join in and thank you tony one one other thing i'd like to i'd like to mention and just i didn't want to just go on about the maker camp the whole time but thank you to everyone who came up and mentioned the podcast, talked to me about the podcast, you know, had conversations related to topics on the podcast. It was a lot of fun to talk to people and connect with people who have written in things and 
and made suggestions for the podcast and interacted with us in person. So I think you all know who you are. I had a wonderful time visiting with you over the over the weekend. Well, I don't know who any of these people are. I am intentionally leaving that out because you should have been there and you would have known. (sighs) All right, I'll be there next year, okay? (laughs) Be there next year. Me and Tony are going to have a tent together. Sweet. Thank you for listening to this episode of Maker Skills. If you should need more skill information, you can find us on Instagram at maker.skills. You can also email us at makerskillspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at PJ Galati, son of the junk hunter on Instagram and YouTube. You can find Tanda at Tanda Madison on Instagram. And you can find Tom at Infinite Craftsman on Instagram. We welcome any comments. Please leave us five-star reviews on Apple so that we can make more skill madness come your way. See you next time. It's time to sell a story. Let me tell you one. Tony, you said that you've got a good story about either selling a tool or buying a tool. You didn't tell me which it was. What is your story? It's not really buying, but it's more of a donation. I was driving along. This was two winters ago, three winters ago. I was driving and listening to, it was early Fitzall podcast. Jimmy was talking about somebody, because people just give him tools, mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. large mm-hmm. tools. And he talked about having a surface grinder. And he's like, he's like, ah, he's just, and it's Jimmy. He's just like, ah, I don't know what I'm going to do with it. And I like pulled over on the side of the road and texted him. I'm like, do you still have that surface grinder? What are you doing? You want to sell it? And he's like, Eh, you just, just just come and take it, and I'm like, <laughs> re- I mean, it, it this thing wasn't pristine at all. It was pretty rough, but the 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 general nuts and bolts of it, it was in really good shape. So I I borrowed a truck and I drove down to his shop. It's uh, funny that Tan asked about the the phase converter because I'm down, you know, seeing Jimmy, and it was when Brett still worked for him, and and, and I'm talking to Brett. Taylor comes up behind me with a pallet and she's like, do you want this too? And there's a brand new 10 horse American rotary face convert. What? I'm like, what? Right. And they're like, yeah, we're just, it's taking up space. They gave it to me. He's like, I don't want, I don't want, you want it? He's like, I've got two of them over there. He's got the nicer, like boxed in ones that are like a roll around you. Mm-hmm. So he gave me, he gave me the, uh, the surface grinder and the, the face converter. So, and then I went through and, I re I redid all the the that was like my first major major tool restoration. I went through and repainted it all, and there was some missing parts and pieces, and I was able to to you know because the grinders from the the mid to late forties is the you know doing my research, basically going on Keith Rucker's website and mm-hmm. finding everything. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's my. Uh, sell story that's funny because do you do you feel almost guilty about like talking about it because it was such a good deal and you're like oh this is this was just like too good to be true like i said he's such a sweet person that you know it's like he, 
I just I feel indebted to him, even though I'm not. I just do. And and the right. one thing is it, it serves its purpose. But just thinking down the road as a business, you have to think of what equipment I do want to replace it with something brand new. That's slightly a little more accurate. There's since it's an older grinder, the 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 spindle and the motor are integral to each other. Mm-hmm. And they mm-hmm. stop doing that because vibrations from the electric motor translate to the the grinding wheel, right. right? And it's not it's not a tremendous like surface finish error, but it's there. Mm-hmm. And uh, shortly after, they went to a motor mounted usually on the, right. the base of the machine, and the belt the belt soaks up the vibrations. So I wanna like basically buy new. So I basically so. My thought is, is when that goes, I shouldn't say this on a podcast, but when that goes, it's going for free. <laughs> right. Right. Tom's going to be texting a hundred people. <laughs> well, I think Tom gave, I think Tom already gave Jimmy a surface grinder that came out of his, uh, out of the shop where his dad works. And so it's just kind of circulating around. Yeah. But I thought it was funny because my surface grinder came to me for basically free as well. And so I have this same sort of, because I just offhandedly said when you at the makerspace, when you guys get tired of this just sitting in the middle of the floor because no one in the makerspace is using it's a surface a, grinder. It's, it's a real even then, in then I'll shops, take it. It's a specialized piece of equipment. So not a lot of people use it, you know. Right. And so and I just offhandedly said that. And then like a year and a half later, they were like, Yeah, we're tired of it sitting in the middle of the floor. We want to use it, put tools that people will use. And so it came to me for basically a bunch of paperwork shuffling to, you know, cause it was donated to them, but the same sort of thing. Like I feel like, okay, now I feel indebted. And so our local machining and tooling association just disbanded and I was still a director. And so we had this pool of money that was part of the machining and tooling association. And they asked each director to give it, you know, to give our portion to some, some cause and so I was like, well, I want to give mine to the makerspace because I kind of feel indebted to them for the opportunities they've given me and, and this sort of stuff. So it just kind of circulates. So, yeah, I just, I, you know, like I said, it, it's karma in a way. And, and I, I want to, I want to pay it forward. And that's one thing I've always tried to do is, is, is pay it forward. Cause the, this community, like I said, has done so much for me and I'm just indebted to everybody. And like I said, it, it'll feel good to give it away. It's not going to hurt you know it's gonna it's gonna be a happy moment so right i'm looking forward to it very cool. now i'm gonna have like 15 to 500 <laughs> messages saying uh, uh, what are you tony, gonna get rid of that tony, grinder tony we only have we only have four listeners so four you're good. Oh, yeah. tom said four listeners on saturday i was trying to make you guys feel better <laughs> I'll, I'll claim it i'll claim it right now before anybody i know of course it. pj claims it pj claims everything <laughs> hey i've been using the 28 volt circular saw and the bandsaw that you gave me i've used those more times than i thought i was going to use already in the more in the the past like three months that's or two months that's that's more than they've run for three or four years you know so i'm I'm glad to see you you know I, i i always like seeing them in the stories you use them so i i just put that battery on the charger yesterday like it i just now ran it down enough and i I ordered uh, two batteries that are dead off of eBay because <laughs> because if you buy one brand new, they're $200. Oh, yeah. There's a reason I gave that because I had two batteries 
and one of the batteries out. And it was one of those things that at the time the the the, the M twenty eight or the it was M or V back then, but any of the V twenty eight yeah. was that was a big deal. And then the M platform came with the eighteen and then the twelve, and it's just kind of you know I'm not going to put another charger in line. So, mm-hmm. but I'm I'm glad you're getting use out of it. So, and that's that's yeah. one of the, the again that's the whole karma thing like with the tool the tool table it's neat to see people you know it, it, the, the best part was i don't know who it was it was it was probably you but somebody brought an old scroll saw like an old craftsman scroll, scroll saw that probably wasn't worth 10 bucks but one of my stepson's friend he friends he was like 12 at the time he had that thing in a bear hug was just like wandering around the party with it. he was so <laughs> excited and i'm like that's that's why we do the, the tool table so Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I didn't bring that. That wasn't me this time. But um, I, I mean, I it was. It was. I figured it would be. It's probably either you or Tom. So it's probably Tom. It might have been Tom. Yeah. I. I think I brought more tools the first slip and slide uh, two years ago. So I had that giant Delta Dust collector and a whole bunch of other. Things. Oh yeah. Yep. But yeah, I. I am I'm very grateful for that. The that that still fits within my guidelines of new tools. I only except new cordless tools. Everything else I have that's corded is at least 50 to 80 years old. It's like I try to get as much vintage in there as possible um, because I know I can fix that stuff. But yeah, that's uh, that's the Milwaukee lineup is growing. And, um, and Julian gave me um, an M18 hammer drill and flashlight. And I took that whole, that hammer drill apart and I found there is there are these five tiny little things that make a circle going all the way around that have to do with the hammer mechanism. And one of them is chipped and like there, you can't buy them. So like I, I basically now every I'm searching Facebook marketplace for like a broken hammer drill. That's the exact same model. So that I get that one tiny piece and then it'll be working. Cause it, it right now it just stays in hammer drill mode. It won't I go into regular talking drill. To you about that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's I'm on the hunt and I'll I'll probably find one. It might not be for like a year or two, but I'll find one, you know. But right now, if you want to buy them, they're like 40 bucks. I'm like, no, that's that's not worth it. So I'll wait until I get one for like 10 bucks when nobody cares anymore. And then I'll have an M18 hammer drill. I want to thank you again, Tony, for uh, for coming on and um, thank you. you know saving saving Tom's butt. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for visiting with us. And sorry that Tom wasn't able to make it. Otherwise, we would have had a fire, Tom, you know, if you weren't here. So thank you again. I didn't heard a lot of stories in my day, but I never heard one like that before. 